We're going to go to Jeremiah 23. If you can find that in your Old Testament, Jeremiah is one of the major prophets. He follows Isaiah, so if you see the book of Isaiah, Jeremiah is right after him. Jeremiah was known as what kind of a prophet? Anybody want to tell us what his... The weeping prophet. Why would a man of God be so sad and brokenhearted that literally he was weeping much of the time he was preaching? Well, it was a sad, dark day in the history of Israel. Jeremiah had warned the people of God, and now the warning was coming to fruition. God said, my people have broken the covenant I made with them. They've not been faithful to me. They're not worshiping me. They're not following scripture. They're going after other gods. They're being just like the rest of the the worldly nations around them. And I will do to them what I told them would happen if they were unfaithful. They will lose the privilege of living in the promised land. And so in Jeremiah's day, including Jeremiah, the people of God were taken captive by pagan nations, primarily Babylon, and they would live in exile for 70 years as God was judging them for their unfaithfulness. We're going to see one sign of the unfaithfulness of God's people, Israel, as we read the first, uh, oh, let's just read the first six verses of Jeremiah 23. If you follow in your scripture, I'll read aloud. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people. You have scattered my flock and driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Let us pray. Father, as we open your holy word, we're thankful that you speak through it. The inspired word of God is the voice of God, that the Spirit will speak to our ears, our minds, our souls this morning. I pray we will hear, we will listen well. Lord, the matter of righteousness is so important. I pray you give us understanding of this big word, this big concept in Scripture. Jesus, you promise, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And Lord, we know there's no other fulfilled life but the life that is consumed with righteousness. So may we be that people who are righteous and therefore living a satisfied, spiritually fulfilled life and purpose. Oh God, may you be glorified in our midst this morning. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, Father. In his name we pray. Amen. Bad shepherds, that is, religious leaders in the day of Israel, were just symptomatic of the whole nation's failure to follow the Lord. They had some really bad 
shepherds who weren't taking care of the flock. Spiritual leaders who, for whatever reason, were not doing the job God called his ministers to do. And so God said, I'm going to deal with you. And after my people have served their 70-year exile, I'll bring them back. They will come back. And Israel did. You read the books Ezra and Nehemiah, it will tell the story of how God returned the people, gave them a second chance to come back to the promised land. And God would set up the right kind of shepherds. They would have some spiritual leaders who were worth following. And then he says in verse 5, Behold, so there's an attention-getting word right there. Behold, future days, in the days coming down the road. And we don't know how many days, they didn't know, but we can now look back and it would be about, oh, 1,500 years after Jeremiah. There will come one who will be the shepherd, the good shepherd, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will rise up, excuse me, raise up for David, the man that God made a covenant with. Remember, King David? And God said, because you are a man after my own heart, David, you will always have one of your sons sit on the throne, ruling in Israel. Whenever there's a kingdom and there's a throne, it will be a descendant of David on it. Which is why the New Testament starts with genealogies, connecting Jesus of Nazareth, born of the Virgin Mary, back through the family lineage all the way back to David. Jesus is a son of David, a descendant of David. I will raise up for David a righteous branch. You'll find branch is one of the symbols used in the prophets of the Messiah. Isaiah does it, Zechariah, Jeremiah. Branch, as if the Messiah is viewed as someone that will branch off of David's family tree. He will sprout and he will grow this branch. And what kind of a branch? A righteous branch. And he shall reign as a king. What kind of a king? He will deal wisely. When you see wisely, you can just substitute on the margin or in your mind the word godly. Biblical wisdom is godliness. To be wise is to be godly. This king will not just be some powerful, fearful, mighty ruler. He will be a godly king, the righteous branch. And his kingdom will be defined by this, justice and righteousness in the land, which seems so strange to us in a world where there seems so much injustice and unrighteousness from the top down. That's, that's the problem. That's what makes our world so hard and chaotic and, and, and sinful. Oh, but the day is coming. When David's descendant, the Messiah, the righteous branch, will have a kingdom that will be exclusively just and righteous. And so it comes rather logically that then what will be the name that the people in the king's kingdom will address him or will think of him in terms of many names that we've looked at all summer, but this name will be the one they will call the righteous branch. The Lord is our righteousness. That's actually only two words in the Hebrew original. The Lord is Yahweh. We've learned that, right? The great I Am. Yahweh, His personal covenant-keeping name. Righteousness. Sidkenu is the Hebrew. I think I've spelled it out in your note sheet if you're curious. Sidkenu. With that U ending, it makes it an our righteousness. Yahweh our righteousness. 
Why would that name be so important? Well, because the king is righteous, right? He's the righteous branch. And because the king does righteously, he he executes righteousness. But I want you to just take a moment and look at that big word, righteousness. Uh, As Pastor Josh said, maybe we don't understand or give much thought to it, but it is big time in the scripture. The passage that... uh, Alexis read for us this morning, just those handful of verses, I counted six times the word righteous. If you look at the whole Bible, this kind of blew my mind. I guess I didn't realize it until I started doing the math and the study this week. Over a thousand times in the Bible, you'll find the concept of righteousness. Righteous, righteousness, righteously, right, or then words that in the English don't look the same, but they really come from the same word family justify, justification. I mean, folks, this is a major, major Bible theme. Righteousness. We need to understand it, right? Because this is our Lord. He is our righteousness. All right, so let's define it. What is righteous? If you think that through, how would you define when something is right or someone is righteous or you have the quality of righteousness defining you? Well, think of it in these terms. To be righteous means to be conformed to a standard. You are in line with that standard. You line up or you measure up. The literal root meaning of the word in in original meaning is straight. So you kind of see the idea. Something is straight, it's in line. And our God perfectly lines up. Our God is perfectly measuring up to the standard of perfection. I mean, absolutely righteous. And he is righteous in what he does. Psalm 145 says, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and in in kind in all his works. Everything he does, everything is righteous. Not everything he allows in the fallen world is righteous, certainly, right? So much unrighteousness. But everything God does, wherever his fingerprints are on something, it's right. He can only do what's right. And do you know why he does righteous works? Because he's righteous in character. Psalm 11 says the Lord is righteous. It's what he is by nature. He doesn't just do it, he is it. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Do we realize that always, always, being precedes doing? You can only do what you are. So God does righteous things because God is righteous. And that's really true in our lives, friends. We can't just outwardly do righteous things, try and look righteous on the outside if it's not on the inside. Jesus called that hypocrisy when he saw it in the Pharisees. They could externally make it look really good and and holy and righteous, but their hearts, Jesus said, your hearts are far from me. Your lips honor me, your hearts dishonor me. That's hypocrisy. No, true righteousness starts in the heart and then flows out. God at heart is righteous, and it flows out into all of his righteous works. So let's consider what would God probably require 
for anybody who wants to come into his righteous presence. What would it take for somebody to come face to face with a righteous God, to know him and have a relationship, and to spend time and to stay in his righteous environment? What do you think God would require? Hmm? It probably doesn't take a PhD to say, well, a righteous God who's perfectly lined up probably has a righteous standard, huh? He probably would say, be holy as I am holy. Okay, God has a righteous standard. Well, how righteous? I mean, how righteous do you have to be to be with God? I worked for a few years in a machine shop, learned a few things. I'm not a machinist, but I learned a few things. When we had to manufacture a part, you'd always get the, the drawing, the plan, and then you go to the computer machine, the, the computer-operated machine, and, and set it up. Chris, you do this, right? So you probably could better explain it, but, but there would always be a drawing, a plan, that you would have to follow to make the part, the piece that you want to. There'd be specifications. And those specs would have very fine numbers, measurements, with usually a tolerance, margin of error. Because nothing in this imperfect world is perfect, realizing that. You look at the drawing, and if, for example, you needed a, a, a one-inch hole in that part, okay, one-inch hole with a margin of error, a tolerance. So maybe you could have a hole that would be 1.1 inch, a little bit bigger, or maybe 0.9 inches, not quite an inch. Okay, that's, that's a tolerance. But if it was more important piecework, if it's medical equipment or something that's very intricate, you'd have some really, really tight tolerances, maybe one 1,000. So that hole could be 1.001 <laughs> or 0.999 night or whatever a very tight tolerance so now let's ask what kind of tolerance does god have when it comes to righteousness that gets into his heaven i would say based on scripture zero tolerance i mean righteous is righteous it's either you have it or you don't all right class we're in school <coughs> And I go to the board, and the teacher has the problem. 50 plus 50 equals. And I'm real nervous in front of all my peers, and I'm thinking real hard, and finally the answer comes to me, and I put in 99. And you're the teacher now. What, what, what grade are you going to give me, okay? Do I get an A? No. I don't? <laughs> what? what? Are you perfectionist? That's very close, isn't it? Doesn't that count for maybe partial credit? I mean, it's better than maybe a lot of my other classmates. It's closer, so can you grade on a, grade on a curve, please, and give me partial right score? No, it's either right or it's not. Who's the first president of the United States? Uh, Abe Lincoln. Well, he was a great president. He was a president, but no, it doesn't fit. It's not right. It has to be perfectly right. And so Job, the oldest, Bible, the oldest book in the Bible, we find this maybe most profound question. 
How can a man be right before God? If God is perfectly righteous, and He requires perfect righteousness, how on earth can me or you, any man, be right before God? Wow. Well, I guess we can try hard. We can do our best. Uh, but best is not enough if you're looking for perfection. And so Romans 3 gives us the honest evaluation. Paul would say, including himself, there is none righteous, no, not one. No preacher, no priest, no pope, no president, no person on earth has the righteousness, the full perfect righteousness that God requires. Oh, but don't we all do some good? I mean, come on, uh, we do some right things. I mean, we help some people. We're kind to them. We're generous to charities. Uh, we get involved in some humanitarian causes, helping our community. Hey, we even do some church ministry. We practice our religion. Uh, boy, you know, those are good and right things, aren't they? On the human level, they're good and right. And we don't diminish or demean them. And we should do them for right reasons, with right heart. But here's the assessment of even our righteousness when you're comparing it to the holy righteousness of Jehovah. Isaiah 64, 6. All our righteousness is as what? Filthy rags. It's too close to lunch hour for me to give you a very graphic illustration, so I'll just let your mind go to the most disgusting, smelly, uh, ugly thought of of ugly, filthy rags, and then think of that's how my best, my self-righteousness compares to God's perfect righteousness. It just doesn't cut it, does it? It doesn't make it. And so I have, to be honest and give us all, that's the bad news. The bad news is God requires perfect righteousness. You and I have nothing but unrighteousness at very best, filthy rags. So, come on, give me some good news, Dennis. Give me some good news. Here it is. The gospel. The gospel. The Lord is our righteousness. I'm, I'm so glad it doesn't just say the Lord is righteousness. That's true. But the Lord is our righteousness. There's hope for unrighteous people like us. And here it is. It's called the gospel. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, because we don't have that. So we can't produce it. But according to his own mercy, he saves us by his merciful heart. And a sister word to mercy is grace. And so Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For think of this, Paul says, if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If I can be right before God because of all the good things I do, I keep the law, I I keep the Ten Commandments, I obey, I I live a good, moral, clean life, I'm a good citizen, good neighbor, good worker, I'm just a good guy. If I have righteousness because of my goodness, then Jesus died for nothing. Why on earth would God send His Son to the cross if people can accumulate or acquire their own righteousness through their own efforts. It's an insult 
to the death of Christ. It means it was a waste. He died for no purpose. It nullifies the grace of God. It says, no, I can get to heaven without God's grace. I can do it on my own. I'm a pretty good person, don't you know? Paul says, no way. I will not nullify the grace of God. I will depend on the grace of God who gifts me the righteousness that I need. I don't have it, but here's how I can get it. Here's how God made it available. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So the Father takes Jesus, his sinless Son, and he makes him sin. And Jesus voluntarily accepts it. Our sin goes on him so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Second Corinthians 5.20. Isn't that a beautiful exchange? Jesus says, come here, come here. You give me all of your unrighteousness. I'll take it. I'll take it to the cross. Then I'll take it to the grave and I'll leave it buried. And then you take from me my righteousness. I mean, it's perfect. I'm God, so it's perfect God righteousness. It's the righteousness he requires. It's the righteousness that will get you to, to God in heaven. So you, I'll take your unrighteousness. You take my righteousness. And the exchange is made by faith. Now, that's not fair. That is terribly unfair that the perfect one should die for the imperfect. That, that the God of glory, the sinless Son, is the one who suffers and is punishes. And the rebels and the, and the disobedient sinners, they're the ones who end up righteous. That's not fair. That's grace. It's not fair. It's grace. It's God giving us what we do not deserve. And Jesus taking what He did not deserve, but what He lovingly, willingly sacrificed Himself for. Oh, beloved, the Lord is our righteousness. There's no other way. There's no other righteousness. It's only the righteous one who dies for the unrighteous, who makes us righteous, when in faith we trust Him for that righteousness. It's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's the gospel right there. Share that with your friends this week. Share that with your loved ones. Share that with a stranger that you strike up a conversation with. The righteousness of God. It's a gift. It's available. It's through faith. You have to take that gift in faith. And it's in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And it doesn't matter. There's no distinction. Rich or poor. Jew or Gentile, educated or uneducated, black or white, male or female, slave or free, any ethnic group, any level of society, it's for all. The gospel of Jesus Christ's righteousness is for all. There's another key word that connects with righteousness. It's the verbal form. And I don't want to get you too bogged down in, in Greek, but it's the same word family it's just in a verbal form and we just don't have an english word righteous fire or make something righteous we we turn that into the english word justify and when you're going through the new testament especially paul who was saved out of a legal background he was a pharisee he was a legal expert in the things of the law then he's converted but in his conversion when he writes by the spirit of god he takes a lot of legal language from his background and explains the gospel with legal terms. And so, for example, in Romans 4, 
you'll notice that Paul would say, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Notice justify. Justify is the legal term. It takes us into the courtroom where the judge brings down the gavel, having heard the evidence or seen the charges, and he says, not guilty. And that ends the case. And the charged person goes out free, uh, innocent, acquitted. Not guilty was the pronouncement. That's what the word justifies me. And Paul says, you think of your God, your holy God. He's a perfect, just judge. He doesn't look past sin. He doesn't excuse it. There's no technicalities in his court that's going to get some guilty guy off the hook like sometimes happens in our imperfect criminal justice system. No, God looks and knows the guilt of that person, but then he pronounces not guilty. But wait a minute. Everybody knows that guy is guilty. How can the judge, is the judge not just? Is he an unjust judge? Oh no, this God is a God of justice and righteousness. So how can he pronounce not guilty to the guilty? Because someone else has already paid the penalty. Somebody else has already taken the condemnation, the sentence that that guilty person deserves, and has satisfied the demands of the law. So in God's court, as in man's court, he doesn't do double jeopardy. He doesn't charge you twice for the same crime. He cannot judge me for the sin that he already judged in Jesus. Jesus paid for it. So God, by my faith in Jesus, God looks at me with the righteousness in Jesus and says, I don't see any more sin. I don't see any more guilt. All I see is my son and his righteousness. You are not guilty. You are righteous, justified by faith. Paul's theme in all of his epistles. Read the New Testament and it just warms your heart to see that all I need is faith in Jesus and the judge says, I'm not guilty. I'm righteous in his sight. There's hope. All right, let's close by answering this question. So what? What does all this mean for us today? Well, number one, it means this is the way to be saved. Dear friend, if you want to go to heaven and live with a righteous God and all the righteous people of God, you need righteousness. I need righteousness. God requires it. I don't have it. God provides it graciously in Jesus. I can have it simply by faith, admitting I'm unrighteous and accepting his righteousness. And now what? What does the Lord our righteousness mean for the Christian living life this week here in Sarasota? Well, number one, let me give you an implication. Righteousness now becomes the way of life. Blessed is the man who hungers and thirsts for righteousness shall be filled. We're going to have a fulfilled life. We're going to be satisfied this week. Whatever events happen, whatever our health turns out to be this week, whatever the weather ends up being, or what goes on at work or in the neighborhood, we can know at the end of the week, my life will be filled with the joy of the Lord, with the peace of God, 
with the blessing of God, with growing grace from God, if my heart beats and I'm passionately pursuing righteousness. I want to be in line with the standard. I want to be conformed to, to the standard in obedience to it, loving it, living it, sharing it, uh, studying it. I will be righteous in my life because I am righteous in my heart. Being precedes right doing and being produces doing. So Christian, if you are righteous because of your faith in Jesus, you know a time and place where you accepted the gift of his righteousness, if that's true, you are righteous, then I say this week, be what you are. Live out what you are. Let God's righteousness from within flow out of your body and how you speak and act and work and relate and communicate, how you do recreation, how you do your vocation, how you do everything in life. Here's how Paul says it. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Your members, your lips. Lord, I want these to be righteous lips. Lord, my hands, I want them to do the right thing this week in line with your word. Nothing that's out of line. Lord, my eyes, I want them to see righteously. I want my ears to hear with righteousness. My members are yours, Lord, because you have saved me. If you know that he is righteous, and now we know that, do we not? If we know he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. It's the proof of the family. You show yourself to be a child of the Father when you have a righteous life that reflects his righteousness. But then flip the coin over and 1 John says, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. You can't be the offspring of righteous God if you are living in known unrighteousness and practicing it and very comfortable and happy in that. No, the righteousness of God is reflected by righteous living of his faithful people. Not perfection. He's not saying you will be sinless in your righteousness. Only God is. But you will be faithful to pursue it and to practice consistently his righteousness. Remember the last time you were afraid, maybe alone, maybe scared because of some uncertainty in your life. Maybe it was a dark time. Maybe it was a dangerous place you were at. Uh, it was a hard time. It was for this young man. It was a dreadful time, very dangerous. Uh, his people were under bondage to uh, the, the evil empire, empire that had, had come into the land and conquered and threatened and, and ruined and, and killed and plundered. And he was just trying to survive, let alone eke out a living, when a mysterious personage came to him and told him, as a young man, you are going to lead the people of God to victory. You will throw off the bondage of the evil empire and you will lead God's people to victory. He couldn't believe this. He's just a farmer. He's not a military guy. He's not a soldier. Just a farmer. But then he realized this mysterious person was no human person. It was God. And realizing he had just had an encounter face-to-face -face with God, the angel of the Lord who is God, 
Gideon built an altar there to the Lord, and he called it, The Lord is peace. Yahweh Shalom. The Lord our righteousness is also the Lord our peace. But brothers and sisters, it's that order. As Isaiah the prophet so beautifully said, the effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness and security forever. If we want peace, it requires first that we be right. Without righteousness, there's no real, genuine peace. But when you know you are in the right, lined up with God in righteousness of Jesus Christ, and you're living your life best you can in righteousness, conform to His standard, the Word, you can be at peace. No fear of enemies, no fear of death, certainly. Death will be our, our friendly escort into the presence of our righteous God. Where there is righteousness, there can be peace. Where the Lord is our righteousness, and Jesus is the righteous one, then the Lord is the Prince of Peace. He is our, our leader in peace. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He declares me righteous by faith, and not only do I have righteousness, but as a result, I have peace with God. So Jesus is that one. The Lord is our righteousness. The Lord is our peace. I hope he's yours. I hope your life displays it this week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for showing us so much about him in, in the various names that you reveal yourself by. We thank you. You are the great I am, forever eternal. And as the great I am, you are our righteousness, our only hope to be delivered from our sin and into your holiness. And that's only through the cross of Jesus. Thank you for Calvary. Thank you for Jesus making the exchange there, taking our sin that we might have his righteousness. Thank you that the Holy Spirit lives in us to produce holiness and righteousness in our heart and from our heart through our members that we can show God and his righteousness by the way we live our lives this week. So help us to make that decision even right now that we will be righteous for our God, who is so gracious to us. And it's in your holy name we pray. Amen.